Hello, welcome to the Cellular Cinema Podcast. This is episode 10, and we'll be speaking to Carl L. Sesser about his work today. If you'd like to hear more episodes of the Cellular Cinema Podcast, you can find us on Spotify, Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and on SoundCloud. Just do a quick search for Cellular Cinema and we should pop up first. Thank you. First, I want to say thank you uh, very much for being willing to join us today. Mm -hmm. It was really nice to kind of look back at some of your work today. And um, and I think that your approach to making work with moving images um, feels really, I don't know, like, like um, I guess I want to say like relevant to, to what we are, both what we're doing and also kind of what we're able to do right now. Um, focusing on kind of, and this is, again, this is just my sense, like the personal, the auto, like the, the kind of introspective, um, looking inward, looking outward, uh, I don't know, genre of experimentation. And I have a lot of specific questions, but I'm also open to kind of whatever direction you want to go in, because I know you have experience kind of whether in an artist talk format or kind of more of a performative thing. So I am happy to let you lead and, um, or I can, I can lead whatever, whatever sounds interesting and, and comfortable to you. Why don't I talk briefly just to kind of give some context to where I'm coming from and then dig into questions. I won't talk that long, but I think it can be useful to sort of situate um, my practice and my interests before getting into questions, um, no matter how vague and abstract. <laughs> um, so, hey everyone, my name is Carl Assessor. I like to sort of designate myself as a, you know, a filmmaker, a curator, and a scholar or professor. Um, and I feel like all three of those things play pretty heavily in my mind when I'm in each of those kind of categories. When I'm like curating a program of films, I'm very much thinking about my own personal practice as well as um, my classes that I teach and how they kind of intersect. Um, I am a artist and practitioner who sort of dabbles in many different interests. I've done mobile sculpture, um, installation, video performance art, and um, primarily do short uh, films. Um, I thought that I would share my screen quickly just to like look at my um, website and um, talk a little bit. So I'm going to do that. Oh, you disabled screen share. Oh, I can, I've, I'm sure I can enable that. Here. Great. <laughs> Allow participants to share screen. That should, that should be good now. Perfect. Um, so I'm just gonna share this quickly. It should be shared. Um, so I just wanted to quickly show you some examples of my work. Um, really briefly, just to give you the kind of scope and boundaries of my work. And then I'll talk a little bit more about my video art, which feels to be kind of at the center of my practice and the things that I think about. Um, I've been doing this kind of broad installation work that are sort of long um, projects that feel like more lifer projects. I kind of like to think of them as ambient projects in the sense that I sort of breathe them. I return to them between projects and films. Um, I leave them, I put them down, I pick them up. And again, it's this kind of permission to live in an art practice and kind of take the challenge of immersing myself in a practice rather than thinking of them as discrete objects that I pick up, finish, accomplish. The object goes out in the world and I'm done. I'm, I'm much more interested in sort of creating a, a habit and a practice that's more ritualized and closer to the home, the home of the self, the home of the everyday. Um, so, so two projects that sort of highlight that are um, one, this kind of larger ongoing project called Alternative Geographies. I'm from uh, the state of Maine originally, so I'm really interested in 
again, this idea of an alternative geography to this very familiar place. Um, so last summer I went around and located by reading all of the city codes, which took like months to do, um, to locate where all the strip mall developments were in the state. And then I drove around and filmed them um, to create a nine hour long sort of silent um, recontextualization of the state of Maine through its zoning regulations that permit stripping strip development. Maine has a very contested relationships to its um, uh, strip malls and its history and its land. So you'll notice in the film, there are areas that are really depraved of um, uh, a lot of um, sort of strip malls that have built up and been totally abandoned as people have flooded uh, or fleed the kind of middle ground area of the state and moved towards the ocean. Um, or at the same time, you'll see in these rural areas, tons of zoning regulation for strip malls, but no actual development. So it's this kind of false hope, this false sort of desire that I wanted to sort of allow a geography to point towards. Another kind of ongoing project that sort of relates to this as well, but I feel like this is more of a geography of the body or the geography of myself, are these exercises in resistance, which I think I sent videos um, out to. It's, it was a kind of three year long project. I'm sort of in the midst of either doing a different one um, or continuing these where the whole uh, desire behind them was to sort of do something, commit myself to do something for an hour, no matter how absurd or small. It was kind of in the wake of Donald Trump being elected and it felt so displaced and uh, hurt and uh, uh, um, nihilist about um, my ability to uh, feel present just at all or even present with my practice. So it kind of was about starting from ground zero about what can I do for an hour? And they sort of evolved into these 24 one hour long performances, including, you know, I was stared at a street light outside of my apartment that switched from um, a, tungsten, a gorgeous kind of yellow tungsten light, which is like my favorite color of city, Skylights. I don't know if anyone is familiar. Minneapolis might have them. I don't know, but they, it's this beautiful tungsten um, light. It's a sodium vapor light that um, is this orange, deep orangey glow. And across the country, uh, they're being replaced by LED lights because they're far more um, energy efficient. But it creates this really neony blue cyan light tone, which I really hate. And you'll notice this if anyone flies at night, although maybe we're not flying too much right now, but if you ever fly at night, I really encourage you to look at the window and you'll see this kind of battle taking place across America between yellow and orange lights and blue lights. And you'll slowly see blue is creeping up and creeping in and eventually the whole country will be sort of a, a sterile cyan, a cyan blue color at night. And I really love that tungsten light. So I wanted to go out and confront this LED light. And so I stood under it and stared at it. And eventually I got the police called on me just for staring at this light for an hour. And so this is a kind of a, a gif of the police confronting me. Um, my video or my film work um, is kind of the heart and soul of my practice. Um, it's what I spend the most time on. Um, the rest is sort of peripheral in terms of um, picking down, putting up more lifelong practices. I sent you um, links to the misbehaving image and vague images at the beginning and end of the day, which I think do a really good job of kind of covering my interests as a filmmaker. Most recently, I've been sort of thinking about my practice in terms of situating bodies and situating humans. Um, my work, I think, is really invested and troubling and um, struggling with the difficulty of representing a human on screen, um, whether it's myself or someone I love or, you know, a controversial figure of my past or uh, a kind of figure of the town that I grew up in. And so I'm really interested in the ways in which that film can sort of be this living um, environment to place a human kind of within. Um, and uh, it has sort of grown out of this deep mistrust of film's ability to really say anything at all, which we can get into as well. Um, and really feeling a kind of, again, uh, nihilism towards my own medium and a, a real desire to figure out how to love 
um, film again. So these films sort of, I've been treating almost as a trilogy of struggling with the concept of how to find, you know, something true or something valid or something that I believe with regards to film um, and how to kind of hold back or hold on to or protect the things that I really value about the films I'm saying with. So oftentimes in these films, you'll see a lot of the ways in which I obscure humans or fragment images um, or sort of hide relevant information um, as a way of kind of protecting it from an audience that I've grown more and more mistrustful of. Um, just quickly, I know I've been talking a little bit a lot, but I always find it really useful when artists um, share their background and what's really been incredibly important to them or influential to them. And these are three texts that I can send out in an email, but they've been fundamental uh, texts for me as an artist. The first and probably foremost is this book called Ordinary Affects by Kathleen Stewart. She's a experimental cultural anthropologist or poetic, uh, uh, cultural poetics is kind of the broad field. And it's a book that sort of looks at at the ways in which culture sort of forms and is made and disperses at the same time through these little moments that feel significant that you can't quite put your uh, finger on. And so it's a gorgeous kind of text in itself. It's fragmented little um, essays that kind of coalesce around this large feeling that you can't quite put your finger on. The Marvelous Clouds is a hugely important text for me um, by the theorist John Durham Peters that really looks at media as this broad um, idea, the media sort of using its original roots of in between, so in media res, um, things that, you know, media be existing between things, people, places, and how can we think of film in that way, rather than just thinking media strictly as, you know, film, sound, or whatever it has sort of been uh, settled into the, today. And Tonglin is another fantastic poet who I really love. So I'll shut up there. Um, that was a lot. Um, but I would love to um, talk more or if you have any questions, Kevin, I'm happy to answer them. I think it would also be useful, you know, maybe later after we talk some questions a little bit to actually all watch together the most recent film and sort of see how everything that I've said takes place on the timeline um, in a way that is more direct rather than discursive. Totally. Yeah, and I want to encourage people. Um, well, first of all, I would really love to get those texts or um, oh, yeah for sure I'll send out an email uh, because they all look really fascinating um, but um, but yeah I, I, I just want to encourage everybody to um, chime in with questions at any point don't don't be worried about interrupting um, and if you are concerned about interrupting um, you can uh, ask a question in the chat and that's an easy way to you know we'll we'll get to it as soon as there's a natural break um but yeah i actually so there's a lot of different directions we could go but um i am very curious about what you just said um and i think you know maybe it's it's a feeling that that um some of us share or maybe share on some level uh that is can be a little bit hard to articulate um but the what you mentioned about um deep mistrust and nihilism uh, about around the, you know, the language of cinema or the, um, like, like I, I just would love to kind of delve into that a little bit because I, I feel like there's, there's a lot to say there. And, you know, I know from some of your work that I've seen uh, that's maybe earlier work, there is also this, uh, isn't, uh, contacts, didn't, don't you have a whole piece that's that's like a this kind of joyful um recreation of the movie contact by robert zemeckis or or references it in a very specific way so anyway so so could you say more about the mistrust and nihilism about uh the the language or the 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 medium of film yeah absolutely it really comes back to a kind of personal history with film um when i was an undergrad i you know, my my big visions of filmmaking that I thought I was going to like grow up and become the next Terrence Malick, this like fantastic kind of over the top sacred filmmaker that if you talk to sort of generically speaking, any like 
straight cis man, white man about. It's like their go-to Bible of what they think the greatest film ever made is. And, you know, as um, I sort of like pedestaled him as being like this amazing artist who sort of sanctified film and treated it as this sacred object that held truth and beauty and meaning. And, you know, as I went through my own personal history of coming out of the closet, sort of dealing with my own repression and like coming to terms with my sexuality, I really started to see the ways in which film treating it itself as a kind of sacred object really oppresses people who don't participate in that or don't belong to that. And so I sort of began to see the ways in which The Tree of Life, which is my kind of go-to judgmental film that I like to talk about as an example of um, this type of sacred filmmaking that I've um, really grown to hate, is the ways in which that it pedestals certain um, emotions through the aesthetics of the film and at the cost of those who don't participate in that lifestyle, namely gay people or anyone who isn't like uh, in a heteronormative, very traditional lifestyle, right? And so it became this kind of journey of like um, realizing all these things that I invested in myself and invested in film around treating it as this kind of sacred object that held truth and beauty and meaning really seeing that unfold and be destroyed and the ways in which I had been tricked. You know, film is this really tricky medium. It's this slippery medium that so quickly convinces you that what you're watching is something to be trusted, something to love, something to sort of unequivocally, you know, enjoy, participate in without any sense of self-reflection or criticality. And I really started to see that. And I kind of had this kind of existential crisis of these films that I like, had invested so much of myself in, um, you know, and really started to see the ways in which they had impacted my own um, sense of self in manipulative ways. So, you know, I think coming out of undergrad, I had this like long kind of process of um, just not knowing where to begin. Like if you can't invest in an image, if an image can't hold anything, if it can't say anything, what can it do? Like if it's so easy to manipulate an audience by putting kind of spiritual opera over shots of trees, then like what the fuck does film actually do? And part of my swearing, I kind of, I can get mouthy in these uh, conversations or talks. Um, but it's like, what the hell can film actually do if it can be so manipulated? Like if you strip away all of its manipulation, if you get down to its like core thing, an image, a sound, is there anything there that actually holds ground, that can actually be real, can actually um, be solid, can be an object that can't be mutable, that can't be manipulated? And so I think it's, you know, these trilogy of film, the Project Gaspaji, Big Image is at the beginning and end of the day, and um, the Misbehaving Image, were really this kind of existential crisis trilogy of, um, I don't, I literally just didn't know what I could do with film in a way that the object kind of held something that wasn't manipulated and wasn't force feeding the audience. And how do you, so I wanted to sort of tackle subjects that felt like they had a life outside of film, namely a nuclear disaster, um, the death of my grandfather and the portrait of someone in my hometown who had passed away. And so how do these things that sort of exist outside of film, how, do, how can I struggle with placing them in the field or in the realm of film in a way that doesn't like entirely devoid them by manipulating the film to sort of convey the sacred feeling of like mourning for the death of my grandfather or mourning for this disaster of a, 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 the nuclear disaster at Project Gas Buggy. Um, and that, so, uh, it's, it came from a place of deep distrust and sort of a processing, like having to relearn cinema from the ground up. Like what is an image? What is a tripod shot? What is a moving shot? You know, what is color? What is black and white? What is, um, you know, voiceover? What is music? It was like, I was this baby, you know, of like starting from ground zero, asking myself, what are all these aesthetic languages do? What do they do? How do they work? How are they activated? And so it's been this kind of long journey of flushing out this kind of internal sensibility or language for what these things feel like they mean to me 
rather than kind of trying to perform cinema to make cinema perform a kind of emotion. I'm more invested in trying to uh, um, force cinema to kind of um, wrap itself around these subjects that I'm interested in. So I'm curious, so if this trilogy was kind of a um, stripping away or kind of a back to basics, relearning, mm -hmm. you know, um, do you feel like you came out of it in a different place than you went into it? Like, like, did it, did it do what you needed it to do? Or how do you feel like it, what was it like? I guess like my initial question was going to be like, did it succeed? But yeah. then it's like, well, that's a little bit binary. Like, like how did it work for you? Like, like what, what changed in the process of those explorations? Right. And, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. I don't know if during the years that I was making these films, I'd be able to so kind of articulate like this was the existential crisis I was going through. But now that they're kind of over, I feel like, uh, yeah, those films really represent a period of time where I just distrusted everything about film and what it could do and tried to restart from ground zero. Um, when I was in undergrad and right after graduated, I started work on a feature length narrative film and it failed quite miserably. Um, and I think, you know, that process of failure and failing to kind of live up to wanting to make my own kind of Terrence Malick or um, Tarkovsky-esque narrative film really sort of humbled me in a way that was like, if I can't do this, what can I do? And I think over the course of the next, you know, four or five years, those three films really sought to ask that question. Now that I'm out of it, you know, I don't think it was until, you know, last year or so where I felt like with um, my newest film, which is called Itinerary of Surfaces, which is kind of a love letter to my partner, did I finally feel like I could invest meaning into film again in a way that, uh, like, you know, I, I feel like I can confidently say, like, I believe in film again in a way that I don't think I could say before. So in that way, I think it was really successful. I think I needed to go through those three films um, as kind of my anarchy um, in order to get to a place where it feels like I can say, I believe in the work that I'm doing and I believe in the films that I'm doing. I mean, I believe in all of them, but the newest film really feels like while I was working on it, it was like, you know, this film and I are on the same level and we're working together as collaborators. Rather before I was very antagonistic towards the films I was working on. And they're kind of brutal, you know, they're brutal towards my subjects and they're brutal towards the footage and the material physically. Um, so yeah, I do think I've come out of it. That's interesting. That's interesting to hear you describe them as brutal. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm thinking back over watching them and um, with that kind of description in mind. And yeah, I could see it. I mean, I feel Real can like, be a form of pleasure too. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I feel like there's something kind of careful going on mm -hmm. too. Um, but I, I guess those aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, mm -hmm. Can be brutal, carefully brutal or, um, or just kind of a, uh, yeah, I'm not sure what the adjective is that I'm that I'm reaching for there, but, but well, they're very intentional, <laughs> right? Go ahead. What What were you? What were you? I was going to say they're very intentional. Like they're very specific exercises that I feel like I was working through over the period of a you know a year around each film. Um, to try to see where I, how I could situate conversations and hide them and destroy them and fuck them over. And, you know, um, you know, I think, you know, the film Vague Images at the beginning of the end of the day, which is about my grandfather, who was kind of a, a controversial figure in our family. And how do you sort of represent someone who has died that you mourn for and you want to grieve because you love them, but they're also kind of a controversial figure. You know, the film starts out by saying, fuck you, motherfucker. So it kind of goes downhill from there. Um, I think there's like an honest brutality and sometimes I think that can be pleasurable or funny, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that, so that whole kind of 
meta progression that you're describing is really is really interesting and you know and I don't want to dwell too much necessarily in your like prehistory as a sure as an artist um but um but I'm always fascinated I'm unfailingly fascinated by like failures and uh and abandoned projects in particular and it's like um I feel like in the the kind of film pantheon uh it's like we get the impression that that these kind of successful quote unquote filmmakers it's just one victory after another like and then they made this great movie and then they made this great movie and so I don't know just the idea that even even you Carl have like an abandoned <laughs> so many failures like <laughs> feature in your sorted you know 20s filmmaker I have so many failures um the failure of that feature film, that contact essay that I showed you, I sort of consider a bit of a failure. Um, I've been working on a film now for like seven years, which was the made out of the like uh, detritus of that feature film, which I still cannot finish. And so that feels like this perpetual failure as well. Eventually it will be made, but you know, it's for now, it sort of looms over my head. So I don't know, I think, I don't know. I think failure is, yeah, always very present in my work. But I like, I, you know, I've really ritualized my work to the point where I'm almost working every day, pretty much for a couple hours, no more. I only really work for a small amount of day. Um, but you can get a shit ton of work done a couple hours a day every day. And so I make a ton of work. Um, and, you know, a lot of it, no one ever sees. <laughs> um, and some people do see it, but then it fails anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. It's even, you know, like I think, so that to me too is is really interesting. And I, I'm curious if you could share with the, I think, um, you know, one thing we try to do in this class is to just make a lot of work. Yeah. And I am always, you know, it's not every week. Uh, there have been semesters when things have been more normal when I've really kind of pushed for people to, to turn something in every week. Mm. Um, but that, and, and it's not about being prolific necessarily. It's not about like, look at all my brilliant ideas. Um, but just about being in the practice of continually making work and, and having to share it with at least a small group of people. Um, can you say more about your practice? So, so, so get real specific with us about, the practice like is it at the same time every day does it yeah. you know like what is the ritual around your making of work that may or may not be you know be ever public necessarily yeah no that's a great question um it's really been evolving i used to work you know in intense kind of chunks um where it'd be like you know, once every week or two, I'd sit down and work straight through the weekend, you know, 10 hours a day, sleep a little and just sort of a frenetic pace edit. And that lifestyle worked really well for me before, I think when I had a lot of energy and I feel like as I'm getting older, my energy is really getting more subdued. And so I feel like it's really hard for me to maintain focus and concentration on a film for more than a couple hours a day, um, two to three or four. Um, but one thing that I've really started to sort of work on and it's become more and more valuable for me in my practice is not so much, you know, these bursts or the amount of work I get done, but more the consistency of the practice. And um, I, really, I really have come to love slow work and slow practice. And by that, I kind of mean, again, you know, it's these films I make, they're really short. They're eight minutes long, they're 13 minutes long, but they take about a year. And that's a, that's like on the shorter duration. You know, like I said, I've been working on a film now for seven years and that's not even probably gonna be a feature film. You know, and these longer projects I've been working on for many, many years and there's no end in sight, right? So I'm far more invested in this idea of the way in which a practice can be slow and meditative and a part of the everyday. And, you know, many of my, or pretty much all of my work is concerned with the everyday anyway. So this is my kind of way of making the everyday visible is by looking at it 
and playing with it and working with it every day. So I typically, I mean, I'm a night person. I hate the mornings. I keep getting stuck with these morning classes to teach and it's killing me. Um, and so generally my best hours of work are, you know, 5 p.m. to midnight, somewhere in that range. And I really try to like um, not be ambitious. I think I got really, you know, I was really focused on productivity and ambition when I first started making films. Like to be a great filmmaker, you need to work 10 hours a day. You need to make a million films and you can only make feature films. You can't make short films. And as that kind of um, insecurity has settled down a lot I felt you know I've started to be more honest with my energy and myself and so now it's like I sit down it's got to be it's usually before dinner or right after dinner usually have a drink I really love drinking while I work and so it's I'll have a gin and tonic and I will like work for two hours turn off my cell phone turn off the internet I limit myself to really a short duration period of time just because I know that I can't actually hold myself to more than that um, and I do it pretty religiously. So I would say, you know, six days a week or more. Um, and again, it's um, not with the intention towards a project, although oftentimes a project will emerge and then I'll start to follow the project, but it's more open-ended. It's how can you sort of allow yourself to be open and curious? I have a really large archive of materials of sounds and images that I've collected over the years and shot. And it's what curiosity sort of rears its head that day and can I meet it? And so um, is that just to be, just to kind of get specific, get specific, um, like is that, is there writing? Is there, is that like finding things online and downloading them and messing around with them? Is it shooting? Is it writing um is it all the above like how do you how do you start after you pour yourself the gin and tonic and take your first sip mm -hmm. like what's the what's the initial impulse what what are your your tools or um where do you go first it depends it really depends day to day the one thing that i would say that isn't in that sort of falls outside of this realm of the everyday is shooting the production if I need to shoot, it's usually really impulsive and in the moment or really planned out. And so both of those things kind of fall outside of that two hour designation. The two hour designation is really my chance to sit down and reflect on what I have and what I can do. So it can either be a mixture of, I have a dedicated notebook, which is outside um, in the library where I, you know, I write in it pretty frequently, but not every day. It depends on if I feel like I need to process something or not, or if the energy is there to kind of um, edit um, through the archive, then I will do that. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I it's really important to me. I know this is another weird one is walking. I walk quite a lot um, and I, um, I chose to live um, in the town where I teach so that way I can walk to school. And so usually an idea will come up during the walk and then I'll kind of meet it that night. Um, usually it will either take the form of writing something that I really need to work through that I haven't thought about with the film, or it will be an impulse of like, this image feels like it could really go well with this sound. And I just want to do that. And I can't even think beyond that thing happening. So that's where I'll start. And then I'll just sit for an hour and see like what happens. Um, yeah, it's really open-ended. There's really not, the only plan is the structure and everything else kind of emerges as it will. But that works for me. And if you've seen my films, I think they kind of reveal that kind of practice. They're really open. They involve very disparate materials um, and they're labored over. Um, so yeah, it might like, if you're working on a narrative film, I can't imagine, and be really difficult to do a practice like this. I think, um, yeah, I think, you know, I think you're right. I think it's it's just, uh, yeah, it's really valuable to just hear about how other people, like there's something just very practical about it, right? Like um, how to get from a guy sitting in a room to a movie uh, that is, you know, complete. Shown on the screen, yeah. Um, works on some level 
and seeing some of the the just just kind of being able to envision some of the steps along the way to that. I use Premiere Pro. Um, I have like the cloud subscription, so I update that whenever I need to. It, I know I like the black black of my hand, the back of my hand. It feels so um, comfortable. Like I immediately turn it on and it feels like home. Like I know all the short keys. I've worked with it for about 10 years now. It's like, it just feels so easy to dive in. It's a steep learning curve, but now it really feels like a second language. You, um, so, you know, uh, like, like I, I'm guessing that this is a fairly conscious choice, but um, you, your terminology involves a lot like in the conversation, not in the films necessarily, you talk about ritual, you talk about the sacred, you talk about being religious about things. Like, I'm curious about your feelings about that kind of framing of a practice. Mm -hmm. And like, do you, you know, does it feel like a spiritual practice of some sort? Um, and if so, I don't know, is there anything more to say about, about that? So yeah, no, go ahead just that relationship. So like you're, you're involved in a practice and, and how, how you feel, how you think about that. I mean, I grew up Catholic and I would go to Sunday school every Sunday. Um, shock. And uh, I, you know, obviously became very dissatisfied with the church. Um, I think this was probably around the same time when I was like really questioning my relationship to cinema or the ways in which cinema is a really manipulative media. Um, and, but I guess I've kind of held on to that. Um, there's like a real reconciliation or grace is a word that I really, you know, I think is at a core part of how I feel about my place in the world um, and how I think about my work. Um, despite their kind of anarchy or, um, uh, disjointedness, I do think there's this kind of obtuse grace that exists in a lot of them. Um, I like that word and I like the word ritual um, because they feel like they are both pertaining to and outside of the body. Um, and those are things that I find really important to me. Cool. Um, do you feel like, so like it's, it's interesting um, that you like the specificity of, you know, Terrence Malick. Oh yeah. Uh, being the bad guy and, uh, uh, and tree of life. Uh, do you feel like there it's, is anybody doing it right? You know? So like, yeah. I'm not, you know, like this isn't, the point is not to kind of critique mainstream cinema or anything, but like, like, when you when you talk about that mistrust or that the disillusionment, do you feel like it's it's just inherent to that kind of scale of global cinema practice, or do you think there's like a right way to do it, or like like I'm curious about your current relationship with that larger scale of of cinema? Right. Um... Yeah, I mean, it's not like I exist in a little shell where I only watch experimental film and like critical what? nonfiction cinema. Um, like, uh, I just watched all the work of Chantelle Ackerman. I, so maybe she's not like a big Hollywood cinema, but she does have a lot of narrative films. And I think those films are freaking amazing. Um, they're beautiful and splendid and um the ways in which she negotiates power with her camera and gives it all to her subjects, I find totally radical um, and very much outside of the type of work that I would make. Um, you know, I really love John Cassavetes. And again, he has a kind of anarchy in his cinema as well that I just totally am enamored by. Um, you, um, you know, woman on the verge of a nervous breakdown or something like that. Um, I don't know if that's what it's called, but I think it's totally brilliant. Right. Or under the influence? Woman under the influence. Yeah. I always confuse those two. Um, yeah, if that's uh, Almodovar, I think. Pedro Almodovar. Yeah. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. One's satire, one's real. <laughs> um, 
that actress is so amazing in that film. Um, so anything that feels like, you know, I think cinema again has this allure to it that's so mystical and magical. And it has this kind of like uh, hypnotism to it that I think can really affect both the audience and the filmmaker. And when filmmakers make films from this kind of hypnotized place well, there's no kind of criticality for their own form or no kind of criticality for their own representative like languages that they're using, I get really like put off. And so the filmmakers who I think really resist that notion of a kind of um, hypnotism um, and create their kind of own language of pleasure, sensuality, you know, narrative, whatever, I get really excited about it. Cool. Um, when you, so, so the, one of the things that I was thinking of watching the films that you sent us um, was um, Hollis Frampton. Yeah, sure. And I'm curious if, so, so it does, I mean, maybe not him specifically, but as you were going through that kind of era of questioning everything, were there any, guideposts for you like were there any things that you were watching that we were like okay this this actually makes sense to me or this this I can trust a little bit and I can use that to kind of move in a direction or totally um one of the first kind of experimental films that like took my breath away and almost gave me a panic attack was Ryan Treecarton's Family Finds Entertainment I don't know if Kevin you're probably familiar but I don't know if the rest of the class have seen it um Ryan Tricarton back in 2004 made a film that I don't even know how you would describe it. It's um, disturbing in its excess. It's it's like um, a tornado on screen and it's um, beautiful and terrifying and disturbing and uh, incredible and gripping um, all at the same time. So that film like really sort of grabbed me and shook me of like oh my god this like where has this been all my life like I did not know you could do this with film and of course this I feel like that kind of aesthetic is now used a lot in YouTube videos um so maybe it's kind of magic has waned a bit I still think it's a brilliant film Danny Restack has been really informative for me for the ways in which I think she permits herself to bring a camera into her personal life and the strength and kind of power of uh, permitting yourself to film more rather than less. Um, I think, uh, those are the big ones for me. I mean, of course I love Hollis Frampton. My favorite film by Hollis Frampton is Gloria, which is this film about his grandma who passed away. Um, and it's this really simple piece that, um, I think navigates a kind of self-criticality, but also love of a certain material, materiality at the same time that I think is really admirable. But again, yeah, I don't know. Those are the, those are the big ones, I think for me, mm -hmm, when I was first starting out. Um, oh, just one other quick thing. After graduating from undergrad, I had moved to Chicago. And while I was there, I was fortunate to get a job at the Video Data Bank, which is this major distributor of video art. Um, if anyone is in Chicago, it's this little, known secret that you can kind of go to the video data bank and just watch as many incredible art films as you want for free. They set you up in their viewing room with a nice soft uh, couch that you can sort of lie on and sort of sit back and watch as much as you want. And so I used to have these hour and a half long lunch breaks. And so I was just out of Hampshire College. I moved there, got this job, didn't know anyone. And so at least three times a week, I would go into this viewing room and just watch, you know, and that's where I saw Hollis Frampton, Danny Restack. I saw, you know, um, uh, Cooper Battersby and Emily V. Duke. I saw um, uh, Inextinguishable Fire. Uh, who's that guy again? Anyway. Da, I, I know, I just I, forgot him and he's so incredible. I'm going to look it up. Mm -hmm. I saw all of his work. You know, it was just this, um, this wild re-education for me. 
Faroki, like I can his name in my head yeah. every single, you know, yeah. Harun Faroki, Harun Faroki. So it was like this year of re-education where I really watched through their entire archive um, and kind of again was like, if I don't know myself, if I feel like I've been lied to my whole life, if I don't know film at all, you know, these films feel like they're allow like creating their own language or doing the hard work of like struggling to figure out their own sense of self and form. And so I think watching through all of the collective was really informative to me. Um, mm -hmm. Cool. Um, I wonder, so you mentioned that um, you were open to sharing your new film. Let's newer, take a watch. US film. I wonder if you want to like introduce that at all or just watch it and then we'll discuss. Sure. Um, so this is a film called uh, Itinerary of Surfaces. Um, and it's a film that I made last year. Um, I'm just pulling up a link for it. Um, it's a film that I um, made last year while I was um, living in a kind of really remote area of Maine. And it was this, again, this kind of conflict of feelings. If you notice, I have a lot of conflict with feelings, I feel like, um, where I was simultaneously really falling in love with this, my partner, um, and also really depressed, uh, feeling super isolated and lonely um, and feeling like the world was ending. Um, and uh really kind of um depleted and so i wanted to kind of make a love letter both of that year because it felt so magical in the true sense of the word um and conflicting and it felt like um you know the question was like how do you make a love letter that includes these feelings as well and can kind of love them as well um and so i wanted to sort of um you know, uh, think about the ways in which various uh, material histories have informed my sense of love and, you know, um, how the place and the landscape of this remote area in Maine has also really informed my situation. So I'm, it's feel, to me, it's a kind of external and internal geography, an external geography of this remote area of Maine placed against this kind of internal geography of my emotional landscape, as Bjork says, who's a huge figure in my life and also makes an appearance in the film. Thank you. So thanks for sharing this with us, Carl. I know it's not like out in the public. And actually I saw on your website that you have a, a distributor now. So you have ex like an exclusive arrangement with, um, with video out. Um, but so, yeah, so uh, I'm, I have, you know, questions and, and things to say about it, but I, I want to give the class a minute to, if there are questions or, or I don't know. I'd love to hear a response from the class. You know, I know that this is abstract work and I know that it's experimental. Um, but as anything that I've been saying, sort of registering in this film or what was your general kind of interpretation or feeling or, yeah, what'd you see? Um, I kind of connected it to it a lot because um, in two respects, one, I feel like I've been working with my own projects. I feel like I've been working with similar stuff. Like my last project had a lot of my, uh, macro photography in it. And I felt like that beginning, I kind of connected with there. And a lot of working with effects to try to make digital footage look like Super 8 footage or VHS <laughs> footage. Um, so I really like seeing that older footage in there. Um, but I also kind of got this feeling of dealing with isolation, which I feel like a lot of people are dealing with right now, especially me, you know, who lives alone. So I really connected with that a lot. And I thought it was a very um, subtle yet um, powerful work. So I, I connected with it on multiple levels, I think. Thank you. Yeah. Um, there was one scene or shot kind of towards the end that just made me so deeply uncomfortable. And like, I kind of like stuff like that. So I really appreciated it. It was like a figure 
in a mirror and like some like a bedroom behind that figure but the figure was just a black shadow and it was so deeply unsettling <laughs> to me <laughs> See, but I thought it was cool I, I really like that shot because like I said with living alone it's it kind of gave me that feeling of like it's late at night I'm turning off all the lights now and I, I catch a glimpse oh, of myself in the in the mirror and it's like weird seeing another person but it's like it's it's still just me I see. That's the scene where I'm sort of filming my own kind of shadow in the window and looking outside of it at the same time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you're not alone there, right? Like there's <laughs> no. there, there's faintly visible figure or figures um, in yeah. the behind you. Yeah, there's, um, there's some sexy actions going on behind me in the bed behind me. Um, and so it's just with this crappy consumer grade camera that was lying around and um uh the uh yeah I like it was late at night it was you know in the middle of nowhere and we had a friend visiting um and in the middle of sort of the visit you know we started getting intimate together and I decided to pull out a camera and kind of record my reflection in the window um while this was happening behind me um and so uh, that's kind of what you see. But it, yeah, I think, you know, I think those two responses are really spot on for, you know, it's, uh, again, you kind of see, you're like stuck in this house. You're kind of alone. There might be action happening behind you, but I've always been kind of drawn to my own, you know, reflection or the reflections of others in different surfaces. And in this case, it's this window that overlooks the bay. And also you can kind of hear the reflections of the sounds of, you know, these two people behind me having sex, <laughs> if I wasn't clear enough. <laughs> um, other, uh, yeah, other, so other comments or feedback or impressions for Carl? I pretty enjoyed the whole um, video, I would say, because it's just really interesting because the whole film is from your perspective, like all of all the audience, we are saying what you were saying. So it's not like you're just trying to capture yourself. It's just like you're showing your perspective to all of the audience. And um, I don't know, I just feel like I just have a sense of disorientated. I don't really know why. And I really like it because I feel like you were trying to capture a abstract feeling or your mental status kind of like that. So I know like it's really hard to film something or you can't even just like speak about those kind like you can't even describe those kind of feelings. But I feel like in filming you could actually capture those kind of stuff. And I feel like that's really interesting. And yeah. Right. No, I think that's spot on. Right. It's these feelings, you know, uh, I perceive the world primarily through emotions and feelings. But I think uh, as, you know, something that I've noticed about myself is generally I have these emotions or feelings and I can't place them. I really have a hard time. And I think this has to do with kind of a repressed body. You know, I really repressed myself for quite a long time. And so I think I'm, I think partially it stems from that, but it's also, you know, I will just have these emotions kind of come up and I don't, they like displace themselves onto my reflection in a window while, you know, two people are having sex behind me or they displace themselves to me onto like the unmade bed, you know, which becomes this, you know, I was living in a studio apartment at the time with my partner. So we were sharing the space that was so tiny in the middle of nowhere. So it was both very intimate, but also so isolating. And so this, bed take up you know over a fourth of the whole apartment and you know it's sort of un it's messiness it's unmadeness became this kind of displaced feeling that sort of wrapped itself up in the same way that I feel like you know the shots of um the flag the cons and the sound of the flag right out, out of the window this like nationalistic image um uh has such a charged emotion to it as well so yeah, I think, you know, I think you're really spot on there that these images are kind of emotional images um, that are doing various different things that feel, you know, complicated to say the least. Yeah. Um, I was struck watching it this time um, 
like and rewatching some of your your older work um how how much text there is in some of your films like people talking words on the screen people talking and words on the screen at the same time uh you know the juxtapositions of images and words and um, i was struck by how nearly wordless this one is and that felt you know in light of coming from watching those previous films really kind of profound like like oh like like nobody's telling me anything this time i'm just yeah sitting with it i'm just having this kind of um visual and and audio experience without without that layer of interpretation or that other kind of yeah. cognitive layer going on. Well, and I think you're, I think you're totally right there. Like all of my earlier work, I think is really caught up with its own sense of interpretation or its own interpretation of itself. Um, and so there's a lot of discursive language in previous work, a lot of sort of text on screen telling you how to view the film or what to do with the film. And in this one, I feel like that totally has fallen away for the most part. And now I feel like I've grown a lot more confident in the choices that I can make sort of at the level of sound and image to do that work for me. Um, yeah, I think that's I think that's a really good observation. I was also thinking a lot this, this time watching it about transitions and how mm -hmm. um, there's like, and I, I feel like this is true in, in your other films too, where, um, there's like a, a simplicity or like a deceptive simplicity to the images themselves, you know, there's like this kind of, um, uh, and you've, you've talked about this, like this kind of domestic mundane, here's my apartment, you know, um, mm -hmm. kind of very, um, uh, not, yeah, simple is maybe not the right word, but but simple like words. like a rawness to it. Um, but then the transitions are handled so like elegantly uh, that 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 to me, um, and not that I was doubting the kind of craft or anything, but um, but like like the the smoothness of how we go from one kind of scene to another feels like really exquisitely controlled. So there's yeah. a, I was appreciating that juxtaposition of like kind of rawness of the images themselves, but then a, a, a really in, intricate um, control of the transitions. I mean, transitions are it for me. Like that's it. That's like where the money is. It's like, I feel like anyone can make a pretty image, but the, the hardest thing in the world is figuring out how to transition to that image or away from that image. And I think that's something that I spend the most amount of time on is figuring out how to move between sensibilities, images, and you know, shots. Um, and so sometimes it might be overly controlled, and I think that's something that I'm working on too. But um, figuring out how to position, you know, like the sensibility of a consumer-grade camera that feels so diaryistic. Um, where I'm standing in front of the window versus the really controlled footage of, you know, filming the bedroom or the archival footage of the aerial photography or like a Bjork music video, you know, like these have such different kind of cognitive and emotional sensibilities that the transition, the transitioning is, does most of the talking and how to set them up, right? So I think that's something that I've always been really acutely aware of. Cool. Um, we should wrap up pretty soon, but um, but I do have one more kind of um, question area that I that I'm really curious to get your thoughts on before we do that. And then, of course, you know, like I I want to re-extend the invitation to to people to. Uh, have questions or, or comments at the end as well. Um, something you said to me a couple of years ago really has stuck with me and it was about the um, kind of like your relationship with, with mentors during, mm -hmm. during maybe grad school or maybe, maybe kind of outside of that as well. And I know that, you know, you're, you're teaching as well too. Um, I'm curious. So I'm curious about your thoughts about like, um, how your work 
So, so when you were kind of in, in the deconstructing and reconstructing of, of kind of your relationship with, with images, um, what was valuable to you in like being able to like talk about that or get out? So, so I asked you about, you know, influences in film, but I'm curious if you have anything to say about interpersonal, uh, an interpersonal layer of that, that you got maybe at grad school or maybe outside of, of grad school and just um, guidance or whatever you yeah. want to call that. I mean, mentorship has always been really important to me. Uh, I went to Hampshire College and I worked with uh, primarily two incredible filmmakers, Baba Hillman and Abraham Rivet. Um, and they really informed my kind of foundational thinking about film, even though I really, um, resisted it at the time, you know, and I, I can't, I, I'm almost embarrassed sometimes to ask about how I was as a student, because I'm sure I was a little demon, um, but only in retrospect, I've sort of come to realize the ways in which they informed, you know, my careful attending to sound and image. And same in grad school, you know, I was really fortunate to be in a program where there is a small group of, a small cohort and a lot of faculty. And so it was really easy to create these really intimate relationships where you could kind of immerse yourself in film. And so I worked with Mike Gibbeser and Chris Harris um, and Julie Murray primarily, um, who were huge factors and, you know, allowing myself to sort of figure out my own sense of language and my own ability to articulate. You know, I think that's really tricky. I think Sometimes, oftentimes, experimental film gets sort of grouped into this kind of category of not thinking film, which sort of blows my mind, um, where it's like, oh, I don't have to think about film, so it's experimental. Like, put some music on it and some crazy effects and use multiple cameras, you know? It's like, cool, fine, but, like, if you don't know what you're doing, what's the point of even doing it? So I think experimental is actually like, to me means like the most carefully tended to filmmaking. You get to know at every single level and at every single shot and sound image relationship, what it is the work that these things are doing to the conversation that you wanna have. And you know, that's the mentorship that I think I've really been taught. And that's the mentorship that I really want to sort of provide for my students um, to see film as kind of this living language that takes attending to. Um, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's nice. That's nice. Um, and, um, yeah, I want to be sensitive about your time, time and then also all of our zoom attention spans. Um, totally. So, um, can I ask a quick question? Maybe this is a way to like, uh, end it. Yeah. To end. But, you know, I don't, you know, I'm still meeting all of you and it's on zoom. So it's very hard to sort of form a connection. Right. But like, I would also love to hear, is anyone struggling with a project or, you know, projects that you're working on now? And, you know, is there, you know, I'd be curious to know, how are you thinking about these things? You know, I think, do you think about, you know, how much you trust your own work or your own film? Or do you have a kind of distrust for the materials that you work with? Um, do you think about, um, you know, the relationship between your sounds and your images and how to transition between kind of two sound image statements. I don't know, just an open-ended question. Anyone have a response? No, silence. Um, with like sound and image, I definitely didn't give it as much thought before this class. Good. So like a lot of the stuff that I would make, I wouldn't really put a lot of effort into the sound. And now, like, after we've talked about it in this class, like, moving forward, I'm, I'm more conscious about what, like, the background sounds are and things like that. Cool. I think, like, in, I don't know, it's another thing that I'm really appreciating, Carl, about the work that you've shared is just, just the idea that the sound doesn't have to match the image, I think, is such a profound idea. And, like, we always try to get to that you know, in the, in the intro class, it's like, what if the sound was not, you know, what if it was neither the kind of location sound or like an enhanced version of the location sound, nor music, like what other right. options do we have? And I think that that, that has the potential to open up so much um, as it, this entire dimension of the experience that isn't, 
doesn't have to be obvious, you know? Right. Totally. I mean, especially since given, you know, the first, I don't know, 50 years of cinema, it was silent. Right. And an image was treated alone for itself, you know, and maybe there is a music accompaniment played live, but for the most part, the image was made with the intention of holding ground on its own, not needing sound to define it. Um, and so I think it's really important to sort of see sound and image as separate working together. Um, yeah. Um, well, I think, uh, maybe it makes sense to wrap it up here. If anybody has a question that they, they want to throw in at the last minute on the chat, uh, feel free to do so. Um, also, if anybody has any follow-ups, I'm happy to, to share those with Carl and, uh, we could we could do that step via email as well. Um, but um, mainly I just want to say again, thank you so much for joining us, Carl. Um, it's It's been great to, you know, see your face and hear your voice and talk about your work. And, um, and I really appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the time to talk. Of course. About Thanks, Kevin. And you guys are lucky to be working with Kevin. He's great. Um, I hope you know that. Um, but this is wonderful. And, you know, anything that sort of promotes a conversation around looking closely at film practice, you know, I'm really happy to participate in. And so I hope you all can sort of feel inspired to maybe look at that footage that you thought was boring and had no energy to it one more time and see if maybe there's some energy there. Wonderful. Well, uh, we can, we can wrap it up there. That's a, that's a nice thank you for the closing uh, closing thought and uh, and wish and sentiment. Uh, so cool. thanks everyone and um, have a lovely afternoon. And um, actually, if you could help me with your emojis or your actual hands <laughs> and just give Carl a uh, a parting thank you with me. Take it easy, everyone. Wonderful. This was great. If you'd like to hear more episodes of the Cellular Cinema Podcast, you can find us on Spotify, Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and on SoundCloud. Just do a quick search for Cellular Cinema and we should pop up first. Thank you. <laughs>